0: Welcome to episode 360 with my guest, Seamus Kirst. Uh, this is from a live recording we did uh, in Oakland a couple of months ago. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by Johns Hopkins University. Every day is about making tomorrow better and is the number one ranked school of public health since 1994. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health can help you become a public health advocate to transform communal health in a holistic, evidence-based way with 20-plus graduate programs and more than 300 global research projects. It's the oldest and largest school of public health. Learn more at jhsph.edu slash feelgood. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, protecting health, saving lives millions at a time. And we will put a link um, on the website under show notes to that. Uh, my name, maybe I should introduce myself. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. Uh, Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Now there's more. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking, this show's not meant to be a substitute for... Professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, this, uh, my teeth are whistling tonight. I'm like, uh, I'm like an old school Western guy, Gabby Hayes. Uh, this show is part interview, uh, part listener confessions, uh, via the surveys you, uh, can fill out online. They're anonymous, of course. And, um, the link on our website to uh amazon might not be working uh right now we had to take it down for reasons i won't go into but hopefully it will be uh it will be up back uh very soon i want to read a struggle in the sentence this was filled out by a woman who calls herself tornado and about her depression she writes it feels like being stranded in the middle of nowhere and watching a plane pass overhead oh my god yes yes and fucking yes that is so that so nails it uh a snapshot from her life Uh, she also deals with uh, anxiety and codependency last year i went to guatemala I was raised in a pretty sheltered environment, so that was way out of my comfort zone. While I was there, my friend took me to this little ranch place that had a canopy with loads of zip lines and canopy bridges over the forest and horses. I'm terrified of heights and horses, but guess what? I did it all. I did the zip lines, tiptoed across the bridges with my heart in my throat, and I even rode a horse. I was so proud of myself, three for three. Then I went back to my friend's house. She's from Guatemala, and I was staying with her family, and her mom said, Wow, I guess, uh, insert her name, doesn't travel much, why would she bring the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe on a trip across the ocean? I went in the bathroom and cried. How can it be that after being so brave, I was so scared of seeming like an idiot? In hindsight, Edgar Allan Poe isn't a great beach read. (laughs) That fucking made me laugh so hard. Like if you had an opening of a movie where you just panned on the beach, you show one person they're you know, they're reading some trashy beach novel, and another person's reading a romance novel, <laughs> and then the third person, probably with like pale skin, is reading the collected works of Edgar Allan Poe. That would that that would say everything you needed to say about that character. Thank you for that. That really made my day. Uh, This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Samantha B. and she writes, Twenty years ago, my parents announced to me and my brother and sister that they were getting divorced. They had planned to get sandwiches from a favorite bakery, then go sit in a beautiful park somewhere, private and green, where any of us could get up and walk away to throw rocks in the river if we felt the need. But it was raining. So instead, we sat in a cramped and steamy car outside the bakery all of us too miserable to even look at the sandwiches. As I stared blankly out the window, trying not to see my brother crying or my little sister looking utterly confused, I realized I was staring into the car parked next to us and that I knew the people inside. It was a family whose kids I used to babysit, and I'd heard some rumors that the father had had a sex change, though I wasn't sure. Um... I wasn't sure I believed it. This is long before anyone in my little world was, quote, woke about transgender issues. But looking at them now, I could see that there were indeed two women in the front of the car, one I recognized as the mother and the other, uh, and one who looked like a plump female version of the father. My dad waved at her awkwardly. She waved back in the same way. And I saw that one of the daughters in the back seat was wiping her eyes. They were obviously having a meltdown of their own. In that moment, my only clear thought was simply, Jesus, families are fucked up. I love things, though, where you realize that you are you are not alone in it. Uh, and I wanted to read that before this. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a, a woman who calls herself anxious mess. And, um... A uh, snapshot in, in her uh, struggles are uh, anxiety, love addiction, and codependency. In a snapshot from her life, she writes, I constantly rely on my phone and social media to distract me from the fact that I'm slowly wasting my 20s away doing nothing of value. It's depressing seeing the world go on without you. Everyone else is having fun. Everyone else is traveling and falling in love and chasing dreams. I switch between Facebook and Instagram. Instagram back and forth until my phone dies and then I'm alone with my thoughts once again there are so many myths at work in the depressive pit you are talking yourself into number one there is no keeping up in the world it's not a race Um, name a single thing that um that you missed out on on social media I-, I can't ever think of a single thing anything that's important enough somebody's going to contact you about it but we have this belief that the world is going on with without us and i lived most of my life believing that myth and the the other thing we do to drive ourselves crazy which you're doing here and i understand it you're in your 20s You're comparing your insides to other people's outsides. You write, everyone else is having fun. Listen, one of my best friends in the world was one of the happiest people on the outside and she shot herself in the head in 2001. You never know what is going on inside somebody. Never assume that this is a race And that you're losing it. It is a way to torture yourself. And like you said, distract yourself. The thing to do is find out what's underneath the need to distract yourself. Find out what those feelings are because you will be running from them the rest of your life if you don't do the work to find out what's happening. And feeling your feelings will not kill you, but running from them might. That's been my experience. And I don't want to. I don't want to get all preachy. I've told you guys that uh, one of our sponsors is uh, BetterHelp, and uh, it's an online therapy place. And I always like to give you updates and tell you. Uh, uh, about what I've been working on. And, uh, as you know, I've been fighting a, uh, little battle with nighttime ice cream lately because, uh, like I was sharing with, um, uh, our survey taker, I am running from something and I don't know what it is. And it's so vague. It's just easier to eat ice cream, to fall asleep than it is to, uh, Get still, and face what whatever fear or discomfort is underneath it. And um, as I began to talk uh, to my therapist this week, I realized that I am feeling some financial anxiety. As I as I mentioned to you guys, they changed the algorithm that men, uh, that measures downloads for podcasts, and so ad revenue for the, for the podcast has gone down by about forty five percent in the last three months. And, uh, it was, you know, it's been freaking me out a little bit. Uh, and so my therapist said, well, she always likes to say this, let's look at the facts on the ground. And so she broke down what, you know, the budget is, what expected income is, you know, how much a a month are you spending on, you know, your electric bill and this and that, and, it turned out to not be as catastrophic as I, as I thought it was in my mind. And she said, vagueness is where anxiety loves to thrive. And so maybe, uh, anxious mess who uh, filled out the, the last survey, maybe, um, talking to somebody putting a pen to paper and writing out what is actually going on instead instead of having this vague feeling that there's this gigantic race that you're losing. Because it, it it's a terrible way to be your own worst enemy and take it from me. I, I made that mistake for the first 40 years of my life. Um, so if you want to uh, check out BetterHelp, uh, go to betterhelp.com uh, slash mental. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if uh, online counseling is right for you. Uh, you need to be over 18 and you can communicate uh, more than once a week with your counselor via email, live text, um, chat, phone, video. Yeah, it's um, there's a bunch of choices. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Aunt Tony. And uh, about his depression, he writes, uh, like wearing a weighted vest that you can't take off but feel lazy for not being able to figure out how to take it off on your own. That is so fucking good. About his anxiety, like a room that is filled with a dozen voices from past memories that are all screaming, you should be doing something more important in your life as you try to stay calm in a casual conversation. Oh, These are so good. Um, And then about experiencing um, uh, prejudice, he writes, when you see me empty the trash or vacuum the floor, do you think it's because I'm lazy or didn't go to college? I paid for my undergrad cleaning up after you, but I'm just another black guy who feels your judgmental eyes and ignorant comments. I work here because I'm too financially unstable and self-loathing and afraid to leave. Um, and then a snapshot from his life. My mother walking into my room as I am stressed out about work, finishing my degree, and my own sadness. To have her give a monologue slash a lecture on how my isolation is hurting her feelings in the family but not asking if I am okay. Okay. Not that it would matter. I'm not comfortable to tell her that I've been sad for years. So I sit there, ride the guilt trip, and wait for her to finish so I can try to work on my paper and feel like shit for the rest of the night. Thank you for filling that out. And, um, man, I I don't know what it is like to experience all of the issues uh, that you have. But I sure know what it's like to um, isolate and feel sad and that's a terrible place to be and I I hope you can find somebody to to reach out to because it definitely sounds like home is not a a safe place for you to uh feel validated this is an awful moment thing uh filled out by a designer depression and uh she writes as an artist I now have severe carpal tunnel in my dominant hand three main fingers on that hand are numb and i've been advised to have surgery i have mixed feelings about the surgery not because i'm afraid of them making a mistake and ruining my career as an artist but because i've enjoyed using my numb fingers to masturbate <laughs> there has to be there has to be like a medical term for that when you decide to let your uh let your numb fingers be so that you can so you can feel like the, there's it's another person uh, touching you. You know you've heard that, uh, like when you sleep. <laughs> there used to be this thing in college where uh, called the stranger, where you would you would sleep in such a way that your arm would fall asleep, and then you would not be able to feel your hand, and you would masturbate, and it would feel like somebody was masturbating you. <laughs> It was called the Stranger. Uh, I don't know what the name would be for leaving the numb fingers, Uh, letting the visitors stay. (laughs) How many how many visitors are we gonna let stay on this hand? Uh, This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by ambiguously invisible, and um, uh, he is a trans male. And uh, about his depression, he writes, uh, a choke collar that never lets me stray too far from my somewhat safer than the outside world apartment. God, so many of us know that feeling. Our world gets so fucking small, but in our minds safe. Uh, About being a sex crime victim, always planning two escape routes from any room and about experiencing sexual bias. Always editing my past so I'm not talking about girl stuff while people are actually reading me as male. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, This woman calls herself, I just want to turn my brain off. And about her OCD, she writes, "Um, if I do every little thing right, then I can stop worrying about doing every little thing right. And then I can finally be happy. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people. I and mean, it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be.
1: All my altars have different handwriting and different...
0: Extremely anxious.
1: Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear.
2: My first thought was I'm about to die.
1: Stomach-clutching despair.
2: Ocean of sadness.
1: I came out over the phone to them.
2: I put myself on the Atkins diet in fourth grade
0: Thank you, Jody. Jody, sit down for a second, if you uh, if you uh, wouldn't mind. I just want no, he's over here. Grab a microphone, if uh, if you would. Um, this might be the last uh, series of of uh, live recordings uh, here in in Oakland that we do for a while. Uh, Jody sold the newspaper uh, recently, and um, it's been underwriting the uh, the these recordings. Uh, I think this is like what our sixth or seventh one, maybe something like that and uh, I just wanted to acknowledge uh Jody for all the work she 's put in. Um, she has made it so simple for me to come up here because honestly the thought of of like trying to find airfare in a hotel and uh where's it where are we going to record it and all that stuff just makes me want to go take a nap and so when she said, I'll take care of all of it. You just have to show up. I was like, thank you. Thank you so much, because I do love doing these and getting to meet you guys. And uh, I met uh, a couple of listeners before the show, uh, and it's so moving to even just hear five minutes of your, your story and what the podcast um, means to you. It's it's nice because a lot of times I feel like I'm doing it in a in a vacuum there in my uh, my bedroom, <laughs> um, but I want to. Uh, I think this story that I've asked Jody to share. In fact, I even read uh, a written version of it on the podcast. But um, to honor Jody and to highlight why she likes the podcast. Uh, I've asked her to share a story uh, with you guys, and she's been kind enough, despite her hating uh, speaking publicly, to uh, to share it with us.
2: Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I do want to clarify one thing: that uh, I wasn't a majority owner of the newspaper, so you know I'm kind of going along mm-hmm. with the outcome anyway. It's still independent, locally owned, uh, which is. Fantastic. Um, and so please, like, keep supporting The Express, and good things to come. But- yeah.
0: And, and they uh, have a rare amount of uh, journalistic integrity, given the uh, environment in, yeah. in today's world of, <laughs> quote-unquote, journalism. Um, so, yeah, do please keep supporting them. And um, I didn't know that you weren't a majority ownership, so now I actually don't want to hear your story. Yeah. Good knowing you, though. Okay, so uh, this happens, what, like four months ago, something like that?
2: Yeah, in March. I, um, I'm i not close with my parents at all. They live in Kansas. Um, and I refuse to go back to Kansas. When they pick me up at the airport, they like to drive me straight to the church to show me the church. It doesn't matter what time of day or what weekday or whatever. Um so I meet them elsewhere, and in March, I was going to meet them in Bullhead City, what, Arizona, and, um, which has casinos, and I thought I would take a little trip on the way there just for my own pleasure, and so I ended up going down near the Salton Sea, just me and my dog and my, um, my four-wheel drive, my Jeep, and... Um,
0: by the way w- w- was the idea that gambling would make emotionally dead parents more interesting?
2: <laughs> it kind of does yeah. cuz without that yeah. there's, there's It's a there's distraction. Um, okay. It's the one thing we could do together. Um, so I on the way down I camped outside Pyramid Lake in LA under the stars in the middle of the desert and then I went to the Salton Sea area and there's a desert down there as well just sand dunes like badlands cactus and sand and that's it and i drove up into the canyons and just made a fire and was watching movies and drinking a bottle of wine and realized i hadn't seen my dog in a long time and i'm my dog is my life and uh and i had seen like coyote warning signs in the in the state park there and he's always off leash it's never been a problem and uh I thought, oh, my God, a coyote got him. So I got up, and I start looking around, and I'm calling, and I'm looking for, like, is there blood on the ground, um, any evidence. And it, and it was pitch dark. and uh, And I'm howling because if I call his name, he doesn't really do anything. But if I howl, he'll howl back. That's just our thing. That's how we communicate. So I'm climbing up these sand dunes, howling up at the moon, trying to find my dog.
0: And what's your dog's name?
2: Dexter. Yeah. And... The sand dunes are slippery, so I keep falling, and I'm scratching my legs up on rack and rock and cactus, and um, there's nothing. And I I go for hours going up and down the sand dunes to the point where I can't talk anymore. And I finally just give up, and I crawl into the back of my car into a fetal position and just cry. And I text my friends, even though I have no signal, just because I wanted help. And um. And sure enough, like... A few hours later, the dog just comes out of nowhere and jumps in the car, and it's totally fine. Whatever. Um, <laughs> my dog's an asshole. But um,
0: Well, you named him after a serial killer. Is it a big surprise?
2: <laughs> That's another podcast. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I finally, I'm just exhausted, and I finally meet my parents in Bullhead City, and I can't talk. I can hardly walk. And I thought for the first time in my life, I'm actually going to tell them a story about my life. That conjures emotion and we're having dinner and I'm right to the climax of the story right like we we don't know if my dogs are going to make it back or not and I'm crying and I can barely talk and my mom interrupts right at the climax and starts talking to my dad about whether or not there's too much garlic on his french fries and she doesn't just ask that one question and move on she goes on for five minutes about it and then finally, when she stops, it's just dead silence. I'm like, I'm not going to enter this conversation again. And that was it. Like, they have no idea if my dog ever came back or not. So anyway, that's just one story. That's why I love this podcast. Like, anyone who listens to this podcast can relate. Uh, that's, this, that's the real stuff in life.
0: Yeah. There you go. Ch- Chodi Colley, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Love you, too. Uh, I'm going to bring up our our guest now. He uh, is a freelance writer. Uh, He's the author of a a book called Shit-Faced, so you know he's going to be a good guest. Please welcome Seamus Kirst.
1: Thanks for coming, buddy. Thank you for having me. Um, I come from the Oakland of the East, so I'm excited to be here. Brooklyn, he's, uh, he's referring to.
0: Although, uh... Would Brooklynites chafe at that comparison, or would Oaklanders uh, chafe at that comparison? Or would everybody?
1: Probably everybody.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Where to begin? You're 26 years old. Yes. Um, Some of the uh, things that we might touch on tonight, um, your battles with depression, um, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, um, uh, your sexuality. Um, what what am I uh, missing? What yeah. other fun stuff? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Then like substance abuse, some eating disorders mm-hmm. within that, and then. Mm. That's all I can think of right now. I'm sure you know. I think that's or, enough. I think stuff will keep coming. Yes. Yeah. Um, you were born where? I was born in Syracuse, New York. So upstate okay post industrial and and
0: give uh give us kind of a sense of what the uh emotional environment of your uh house growing up was like how many kids what was your parents relationship to each other and kind of to to you guys
1: yeah so i have two siblings um i have a sister who's actually 5 months older than me not a biological miracle she was um adopted and then during, while once my parents decided to adopt her, it became easier for them to become pregnant. Like once they stopped focusing on it, the same thing happened with me. My brother is seven months older. Yeah, than me. yeah. And oh, it's actually really—it's a phenomenon. Yeah. Growing up, I thought that it was very unusual, and the more I talk about it as I get older, I realize that that really does happen. Yeah. Quite often. It does. Um, and then I have a younger brother who is like four years younger than me. Um, my parents. I grew up in, like, a very loving household, but I would also say that both of my parents had pretty, like, traumatic childhoods. Um, my mom is one of eight, and she grew up in a super alcoholic household where her parents were, like, abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, emotionally, and... Just, yeah, mostly... She didn't grow up in an alcoholic-loving household? <laughs> There's <laughs> yeah. a phrase I've yet to hear. Yeah, she didn't have, like, f- yeah. fun okay. alcoholic parents. Yeah. Um, LAUGHTER Um, And then my dad grew up. um, So I think actually something that's like I've always found really interesting is that three out of four of my grandparents were orphans and like were raised in orphanages. So I think that like kind of like that generational trauma was definitely at play in both of their houses. Um, And then my dad grew up like in a small factory town outside of Buffalo, New York. Um, His dad like worked at a factory and his mom was a cleaning lady. Mm -hmm. And they had five kids, but there were like ten, it was like really kind of almost like Oregon Trail-esque. Like mm. five babies, yeah, kind of died, which is really dark. Um, and so, yeah. So like I think his mom had a lot of issues with, and dad with, like grief after all those, yeah, probably I mean, their did. losses, and then as kids, and then their losses as parents. Um, so, it so th- a really long way of. Yeah, no, no, no. That's that's yeah. interesting stuff
0: because it sounds like uh, to become emotionally invested in uh, another human being
1: was probably something that was fraught with uh, anxiety for mm-hmm. for them. Definitely. Like, okay. I feel like it's. I mean, I guess whenever you read about like history of that time, like I think it's something that it's hard for me to even comprehend. Like how many, how usual, or how much more usual it was to like lose a child or like. With the world wars, to like lose a spouse, and it was just yeah. like definitely a different time with what you could come yeah. to expect. I think with Ooh, the lights just kicked down in I a know. very wow. dramatic way. <laughs> um, it's mood lamps, yeah, seasonal I, affective disorder lamps. Our, 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 <laughs> <laughs> this is the right. This is the I right requested crowd.
0: them. They're like, that's actually, it's not my color temperature. That will make me bipolar. <laughs> could we make it uh, 100 degrees? More yellow. Um, so go ahead.
1: Um, but yeah, so my parents were like really very loving and like um, they loved each other and they loved us. Uh, they, but like I think that they had their own things they were like dealing with in terms of trauma in their childhoods. And like um, we definitely grew up in a house. Like I feel like as I've gotten older, they've become much. Like, not much more, but, like, they are financially comfortable-ish now. Mm-hmm. But, like, growing up, like, money was, like, a serious stressor. Like, they always had a lot of debt. And um, so I think in that sense, it was, like, you know, there it was, like, a loving household, but there was also a lot going on. And, like... A lot
0: hovering over them.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Uh, give me some uh, snapshots from your from your childhood that you think are kind of emblematic of either your inside or your outside world? Um. Hmm. Maybe how you felt like you fit in or didn't fit in your view of yourself, your view of other people your place in the world, what the future held, any any of those things. Yeah, so
1: actually, like, I think one thing that I always found really interesting, and actually my mom and I did an interview like two weeks ago with NPR StoryCorps, and we were actually talking about this. Um, so she grew up in like a super alcoholic household where there was like this huge importance put on kind of hiding what happened in the household, and like, you know, like curtains drawn, like mm-hmm. what happens stays in here,
0: now, when you say super alcoholic, did the alcoholic have a cape? Yeah. Okay. He,
1: the alcoholic fought villains. A, um, a big A. Mm hmm. There's like a big A in the sky, and then he'd yeah. leave. Um, and he'd always show up late to help <laughs> <laughs> with a shitty excuse. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like she grew up in that type of environment. And. Um, so I think we, that kind of carried over into our childhood and we like had, I don't know, like we, it was definitely, we have like a combative environment in our house in the sense that like people could become very like explosive, not like physically, but like I would say everyone in my family has like a temper. Mm-hmm. Um And that was just kind of like, I think somebody was fighting with somebody like most days of my childhood. And there was just like, as it carried on, like, as my issues became more of a thing, like we all kind of continued that sense of like hiding things. And like, you kind of had a reality at home and then like a reality that you would kind of express the outside world. And like my dad was the local columnist growing up and like Syracuse is small. So like he was a local celebrity, Mm -hmm. I would say. And like, I think that even like added more of an importance of like, you know, you don't want to be like the dysfunctional family because it's like, kind of, like, fucking up his career, if you do that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Give me some
0: examples, then, of when it was loving.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, it was always loving. Like, even within that, like, I think that was the thing that I always found interesting. And actually, earlier, I was even talking to somebody about this with, like, how you sometimes model, not sometimes, a lot of times, like, model things that your parents did. And, like, my parents love each other very much but also would get into big fights and like so then we would as siblings and like when I had my first serious relationship in college like I would get into really huge fights with my now ex-boyfriend and like I kind of thought that was normal and like when that would happen he would look you know like disturbed because that wasn't how he grew up and so I think that like that was kind of the environment like it was very like um like, everyone loved each other, and we would, like, do all these fun things, and my parents were, are, like, genuinely, like, the most selfless people I know, like, and cared so much about, like, being present. Like, my mom would work nights at a group home so that somebody was home with us all the time, that we weren't being, like, raised by babysitters. Wow. Yeah, so they, wow. like, really... And they are, like... You know, like, me and my siblings are kind of brats, and, like, they very much, like, always put us first. Um, But then, like, within that, there just was a lot of... Like cyclical, yeah. I don't like stormy yeah. relationships.
0: Yeah, it's like the kind of trauma. It sounds like they went through. It's gonna reveal itself in some way, right? Or another, either like, shutting down or anger or you know.
1: Mm-hmm. And like my mom always talks about, like with my book, like a lot of it is more focused on kind of the darker stuff because it's like nobody wants to read like then I went to the playground and like swang for four hours and went down the slide Right. Um so it's like hard to work that stuff in but she's always like what about all the like positive memories and so like now I'm trying to make more of a point of being like there were a lot of positive yes. memories like yeah. I, fr- I did ha- in many yes. ways have a happy childhood it's just like yes. I also like in certain ways, didn't
0: I, I? Totally understand that because I forget to do that sometimes on the podcast. And as I'm listening back to an episode, I'll think, um, "Boy, if I were that parent or that other person, I would feel kind of slighted because right. it doesn't paint an entire picture of me." But as a podcaster, you want the most compelling stories right. in that hour, hour and a half, however long mm-hmm. it is. So, um, so uh, what are what are some some of the uh, uh, moments. You you shared one that she worked nights uh so that she could be with you uh, during the day. I mean, that's beautiful.
1: Yeah, and just, like, I feel like that's such a, like, symbolic gesture that really, like, represents how they approach our whole childhood. And, like, um, I don't know, even, like, I went to Brown University for undergrad, and that was in Providence, Rhode Island, which is, like, six hours away from... Um, Syracuse and like my parents would like drive to Providence, pick me up and drive me back that day. Like they were just like those types of parents. Like I don't think there was, I mean, obviously like I'm sure a million times I would be like, you don't love me, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think there was ever actually a moment where I like questioned that my parents loved me. Yeah. The
0: actions are so, so important. Right. You know? Um, So give me some, um, some moments from, from childhood i I feel like we've established the ways in which they were loving unless you have uh more that you think uh you should share with us
1: no i mean yeah like my dad was just like literally coach like you know what i mean like very involved very loving but okay all right then that's not the full point of the podcast yeah
0: (laughs) no now let's throw him under the bus (laughs) we've dressed him up nice now let's hit him with the bus back up
1: over them and call it a night. Yeah, I'm reappropriating this as Pleasantville podcast, so we'll just yeah. keep talking about playgrounds and Little League. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so what what would you say was the first moment in your life that you can recall where you felt different, out of place, uncomfortable in your skin?
1: Yeah, I feel like, I mean... I don't know, I think it's really interesting, like, I'm very young, and even when I think back to the 90s in terms of how people talk about, like, gender and sexuality now, it's like, we've already come so far, which is saying a lot because we still have so far to go, but, like, I think that I remember, like, growing up in the 90s and, like, when I was younger, like, I had a sister who was five months older than me, and, like, I really only wanted to play with, like, quote-unquote girls' toys at that time. Like, I always played with, like, Barbies and, like, little castles with... Princesses and like was loved Disney and like was just never that interested in like you know like Tonka trucks are fucking boring so I like wasn't into that Um, unless there
0: was a cute guy driving the Tonka truck yeah or unless unless
1: a princess was like zipping it around Um, (laughs) but so I think that like I mean I remember from the time my my earliest memories are probably of that and like that's something that like as a writer I've revisited a lot because I think that for I think, like, so many gay men, at least that I've spoken to as adults, have similar memories of that, and it's, like, a... it's And I think that, like, when you're little, it's just, like, scary to feel that isolated and different, and, like, I feel like it's, like, interesting... I mean, I've always, like, found these, like, weird parallels between, like, how I would, like, play with a Barbie, and, like, once I realized that, like, that was taboo or whatever, how I would, like, hide it in a way that, like, I would later hide, like binge drinking when I was 22, but it's, like, weird to look at those behaviors and, like, being secretive as a three-year-old or a four-year-old and, like...
0: Imagine how powerful it it would be if Disney made a movie about a little boy or a little girl and their story Mm -hmm. of, you know, um, realizing that they were different from the mainstream as a child but supported it. In a way that showed that playing with the the dolls and embraced that
1: that mm-hmm. part of them.
0: How how helpful that would be to kids to see their story validated, um, right? That would be nice. Some, would you? Would one of you get on that? Write that screenplay.
1: I know. Wait, isn't Pixar like in Oakland or around go. here? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go with picket signs after. But in, as much <laughs> as I hate corporations. Um, Mattel did that commercial like a year ago yeah. with the boy playing with the Barbie. And it's like, I'm sure they were, you know, had crazy ass people like coming for them. And oh, so fuck. I really Look, give them credit would for that. I so
0: love Gotta to read all those letters and it. respond mm-hmm. to each and every one.
1: Well, one Just of the, like, a
0: Xerox picture of my dick is my signature.
1: <laughs> 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 well, and like one of the pics, I forgot which, Finding Dory or something like had a... Lesbian couple for like 0.5 seconds recently, and like people yeah. freaked the fuck out. So, this movie that you're saying I think is so important because I think that it's good to make people freak out.
0: Yeah, and and to set the bar above, we tolerate you, right? You know, to maybe we love you for who you are.
1: Mm-hmm. That would be that would be nice, right? Yeah, it is interesting how like pejorative tolerance is. Yeah. Like, yeah, just. The sentiment behind no. that like, will allow you to live, but by yeah, you know, I, I, slight disdain.
0: I had a, a moment uh, in my recovery about six years ago where, and this is as a you know, white, hetero, cis, cisgendered male, I realized that all my life I had thought that God or the universe or whatever had merely tolerated me despite being disgusted. Uh, by me, so I can't imagine what it would be like for somebody who isn't all of the, you know, quote unquote, uh, normative. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't check off all those right. All those and even boxes. within
1: that, like larger equation, like I'm so privileged, and like yeah. the only way in which I have ever experienced depression is through my sexuality, and like that. There's so many people who have, are dealing with so much more. Um, But then, yeah, also, like, I guess, touching off that, too, like, I grew up um, Irish Catholic, if you can't tell by my name. Um, And so that was always, like, something. And I didn't even go to, like, a... Like, my church was, like, very liberal and was always, like, pushing back against, like, the Vatican and, like, Mm -hmm. their weird rules. um, And would, like, get in trouble. Like, there was, like, a picture of them, like, giving communion to, like, the Chancellor of Syracuse University, who was Jewish, or, like, they would have women at the... Podium with a fancy name, the altar or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and boy, you didn't go to church, did you? <laughs> no. The sad yeah. thing is, I, I went to church until eighth grade, but I was yes. just like reading Lord of the Rings in the pews. Um, <laughs> but I do know the word for pew, so I'm gonna give myself a pat on the back for that here's, one. Here's a test. What do, the the little booklet? What, what were those called? Not the Bible. The
0: no, they'd be in the pews. The sol- missallet.
1: Oh yeah. I've never even heard that word. <laughs> but yeah, I did leave in eighth grade. <laughs> yeah. So you are a good Catholic? Mm hmm. I had my first communion. Yeah. So, um,.
0: Pick up with the uh where where we left off, uh childhood memory. Uh did, did you feel bonded to your sister? Was she uh accepting of you being uh, uh different than the stereotypical boy?
1: Yeah. Um and my sister and I like we were like each other's first best friends and like we are very, very different people. Um and our lives like have taken super different directions, but we're still close. Um but I remember like this. She, when she was younger, like, in dealing with, um, kind of, like, coming to terms with, like, being adopted and, like, which I think is also a super traumatic thing to do. My parents were always, like, honest with her about it from the time she could, like, comprehend it and with us. And they had an open adoption, so, like, her birth parents were around. So she, like, struggled with gaining a lot of weight when she was younger. So, like, I feel like she and I always had this thing where we would be, like, you know, awful to each other and say, like, horrible things. But then... Like, if anyone else said one of the things to the other one, we'd, like, punch them in the face. Like, we kind yes. of had this thing that, like, if anyone went near, like, calling me gay or whatever, she would just be, like, you know, ready to throw down. And if anyone called her fat, like, I was ready to do that, too. Yeah. Even though then, like, cut to five minutes later, we'd both be calling each other those names. <laughs> that's that's uh, fucked upidly
0: beautiful. Uh, yeah, awfulsome <laughs> is, uh, is the word we, we like to use. Um, so what's the next piece or phase or thing you want to share
1: um yeah so i I don't know so i guess like on the continuum of life and mental health so like from the time that i was young like my family going off of what i've already told you um we would like be in family therapy a lot um whose uh insistence I actually don't remember that's actually a really good question that I should I'm actually curious now yeah, i don't maybe it was the town, yeah, the street. <laughs> yeah. the neighbors <laughs> formed an association and yeah. asked us to go um, but yeah, so we'd go and like it would be you know um volatile and then we'd kind of like stop going and then, but I just think I like always remember being in therapy like for as long as I can remember, and my parents always talk about that I was, like, f- very moody, but, like, not in, like, a, you know, like, attitude way, but more just, like, would be, even from the time that I was really little, like, my parents said that there was a side of me that was, like, very serious and, like, dark and, like, depressive, um, and so by the time that I was in middle school, I had, like, my own therapist who was, like, also kind of the family therapist who I, like, really did not like and was kind of, reminded me of, like, an evil version of Ellen DeGeneres. Um, and so we'd, like, have a lot of... So she would cut you down while you danced? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She'd, like, throw a plush armchair at me and not give me a check at the end of the segment. Um, but so she... And I would just, like, clash so much. But then, like, I think in sixth grade, I went on antidepressants. Um, and then by seventh grade, I'd, like, been hospitalized for overdosing on those. Um, did the de- antidepressants ever help? They did. Uh, I don't know. Like, at that time, I'm not sure that they did. Now I'm on antidepressants and, like, love them um, and happened for, like, four years. But I think that, like, growing up as a kid, you're, like, so you just see, like, mental health interventions in any form, I think, as being so punitive. And, like, mm-hmm. I think that when you're, like, a little kid, all you really want is to be, like, quote, unquote, normal. Or, like, and so anytime people are, like, you are different and you need this thing to make you better, or like, you know, you take it as, like, something is wrong with you. So I think I was always very um, resistant to antidepressants in that way. So I feel like from, like, sixth grade through... Being twenty two, I was always, like on and off of antidepressants, and then obviously once high school came, I was like drinking too much mm-hmm. while on them, which is worse, I think, than yeah. just not being on them. Uh, so, was there something that triggered the suicide attempt? Yes, yeah, so I think that probably is like, I mean, I don't think it's like coincidental that that's around the time of like puberty and like sexual awakening, and mm-hmm. um, the actual trigger was that I prank called the mayor. Of Syracuse, who was like the father of one of my classmates, and got caught. So that was like the and you know, got grounded or whatever. And but so that was like the immediate trigger, but I think the like underlying trigger was definitely like being you know, 13 or whatever and realizing I was gay and just kind of being like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> what was the prank? The prank was well, um the prank was like pretty fucked up. Um I had the feeling. Yeah. So I, it was like I was at a birthday party, and we were all kind of going around a circle doing prank phone calls. And then mine was that I pranked the mayor and, like, said that the—I didn't say a real school, but kind of just said, like, at the school and said that the gym teacher was, like, getting too close to my child and, like, pretended to be a parent, so— it was very. It was one of those things that you're just like you even say aloud when you're older, and you're just like, "What the fuck!" Like, and when you're 12, that's so like funny to you. and Now you're like, "That's so awful on so many levels."
0: I think the most awful part is that a 13 year old could think they would sound like an adult.
1: Right. Yeah. was <laughs> a gym teacher who's exactly. <laughs> and that yeah, you know, like no star six seven. Um, yeah unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that was <laughs> not my finest moment. Do you think there was anything subconsciously that that made you think of that prank? Well, that was like, I mean, that was like a rumor about a gym teacher at our school. And mm-hmm. I feel like, which I don't think is an uncommon rumor yeah. about gym teachers at lots of schools. Um, because, I mean, they're kind of, you know, mm-hmm. get close. Um, but then I th- think, too, that it was just, like, part of my personality, especially at that age, was being, like, the one who would kind of, like, take it the farthest. Like, it started by being prank calling, like, Taco Bell and saying we found, like, a finger in our cheesy bean and rice burrito or whatever. And then it just very quickly escalated to this thing that was, like, really, you know, (laughs) slanderous. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, So,
0: what can you remember from your decision to try to uh, overdose? on them
1: I think the thing that really freaks me out to think about with that day is like so I wound up like going home the next day and my parents were just kind of like seriously and it was like awkward because as I was saying my dad was like the columnist and he had to like work with the mayor and like mm-hmm. um I went to school with his son so it was kind of like he was like you really have to like my punishment was probably that I was like grounded for a few days and like had to apologize which you know I mean just everything when you're 13 is like the end of the world mm-hmm. um but I th- also remember, like, I'd been reading. I think it was that I was reading Riding in Cars with Boys, and one of the scenes in that was actually that she, like, overdoses on Advil or something. Um, and I remember just going to my room and just being kind of, like, fine for a second, and then just, like, thinking about it and then kind of committing to it. And, like, I don't, I even. I remember, like, getting Sprite or something and then just, like, taking pills. And, like, the thing that I always find very, like, jarring about it was, like, first of all, that I was, like, kind of calm while doing it. And then also just, like, that, like, drinking Sprite is so, like, childlike. And then while doing this thing that in certain ways is a very juvenile, impulsive, knee-jerk reaction, but is also such a, like, heavy, dark decision that you associate with, like... I mean, I guess you don't really associate it with adults because a lot of teenagers, unfortunately, either try to or do kill themselves. But, um, yeah. I think just, like, the, like, combination of, like, handfuls of pills with, you know, like, sugary, sweet spray is, like, very bizarre. Yeah. Did your parents know? Well, yeah, so, like, I literally took a, like, um, not a jar of pills a bottle of pills and then immediately was calm until that point and then like you know flipped out and ran downstairs and my dad took me to the hospital and i had to like drink liquid charcoal mm-hmm. which i like imminently uh, uh projectile vomited all over the floor and it was just like very and like one of the i mean Syracuse small, smallest like one of the nurses was like the mother of a classmate it was just like which I think is scary when you like have this thing that you're like, I want to not talk about this, and like now this person's mom knows. Yeah. Um, was it ever? Uh, did word ever get out? Actually, no. I think I might have told like maybe like one friend about that mm-hmm. at the time, and they were just kind of like, oh, like, and we were like, I remember being on the ski lift and like telling him, and it's kind of that's like, the okay. best place to do it. Yeah, and he was like, okay, yes. let's do like yes. this trail. <laughs> Bad news. Bad news should always be uh, broken at a height. Yeah, where somebody is literally unable to leave you. Exactly. Or kill themselves. Yes, broken elevator, (laughs) Uh, I'm carrying
0: your baby. (laughs) Or I'm carrying a baby and it's not yours. (laughs) Um, How did your parents handle it in the aftermath?
1: Um... I remember, like, having to go to a, like, family-wide psychiatric evaluation after. Um, And I think they were just, like, I don't really, I feel like at that point they probably really didn't know what to do. Um, Like, I think I kept going to my therapist for, like, a little. But, yeah, it just kind of, I don't think they knew what to do, to be honest. Which, like, I don't blame them. I don't think I would know what to do either.
0: And uh would it be fair to say that it was something that uh nobody really wanted to bring up again, including you
1: yeah, f- especially for like that time being, because like I mean then like high school came and that happened again, like in high school, I very quickly mm-hmm. had like a really scary binge drinking issue, and like my freshman sophomore. And junior years of high school, I was like hospitalized for alcohol poisoning all three of those years, and like the first time got like hypothermia because I was outside sledding when it happened and then the second time, I actually like again took a bottle of pills while being drunk and drank mouthwash as well so it was like and after that, I went to rehab inpatient for a month, which was my sweet sixteen present um and um So yeah, so then I think after that it became a little bit more of like a conversational topic because it was like this is not an isolated incident; like all these things are recurring behaviors, and that was really alarming. Did you uh, agree with uh, your parents that there was a drinking problem? Um, No, like which is so it's so bizarre now. Once you get past things and you like look back, and you're like actually unable to even like revisit the mindset of how you convinced yourself that when you're like 16 years old and you've been hospitalized three times for drinking, that that's not a drinking problem. And even that I went to rehab and was like, I wasn't like, Oh, I'm an alcoholic. I need help. I'm like, okay, maybe they'll get off my back. If I like go to rehab for a month. And I was wanted like a break from high school and like all this stuff. (laughs) So like rehab was the obvious solution. Um, in rural Pennsylvania. Um, I didn't even go to like Malibu, promises or whatever when did you
0: uh when did you admit to yourself that there was a problem
1: when I was like 22 so like seven years later okay I think when I well I don't know I think there were points where I was like I'm having a problem with drinking but I don't think I think it was harder it was so much easier to do that than to be like I have a drinking problem yes and then I was kind of like okay like I'll because there were a lot of periods where I would take like two months off or whatever, and it was kind of like, you know, like, I was like, okay, like, did my time, I can drink again, or whatever, like, I'd kind of, like, reset, and then would start again, and a lot of times, it was, like, weird, because then when I would start again, I'd be so conscious of it that I would Mm -hmm. be better about it for, like, a few months, and then I would just kind of, like, let go again and be a hot mess.
0: I I think, like, one of the big um, (sighs) difficulties for an untreated alcoholic to see is that they think their problem is that they need to make different choices instead of realizing they've lost the power of choice right and that they need help through the form of human connection a more practical way of living etc etc and especially if it's a periodic drinker like it sounds um, mm-hmm. You you would be,
1: and also like I stopped drinking when I was twenty two, so all of my drinking was confined to like late middle school, high school, and college, which is like a time. Ta- all those environments are binge drinking cultures, or like mm. it's exciting because you're getting away with something. Yeah, and I think that like a lot of people who still drink now probably can look back at their drinking in college or like their drug use or whatever and be like, whoa, yeah, and like a lot of people like. Turn the corner and we're fine, but like, it just wasn't. Like I think now in the real world, when like college felt like not the real world. Like it's weird that I even just said that, but like if you were being hospitalized that much, I think it would very quickly be so much more jarring. Where in college and high school it was like it was jarring, and I know it's not normal, but it was like much. People accepted it so much more.
0: And some people, it would be a badge of honor that, you know, I party that hard that, you know, they had to hospitalize me.
1: Right. Um, Well, and I think that, too, the thing that I did with, so, like, I was also, like, my high school valedictorian, and I was, like, you know, really crazy when it came to school, and I, like, would always still kind of do the stuff I needed to do, and, like, I got into Brown and, like, went there and wasn't, like, killing it academically, but I was, like, fine. And... So I think I was always able to like be fine enough that I was kind of able to tell people to like fuck off when they were trying to like intervene and try yes. to.
0: How could I have a problem? I got an A. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like I'm like, how could I have a problem? I literally did better in high school than everyone else around me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the the high functioning alcoholic is, it, you know, that is a, a difficult, uh, a difficult, um, truth. For right. for that person to see and the outside world. Mm-hmm. Um, when I shared with friends of mine that uh, I was sober uh, and that I was an alcoholic, people, friends that I drank with, ninety nine percent of them were like, "No way,
2: mm-hmm.
1: no
0: way." But if you're that person, you know because you know what you're like twenty four hours.
1: Yeah, and going <laughs> a back day. to what you're saying about like rules and stuff. Like I also had a lot of issues with like drugs and, like, especially prescription pills. Like, I was really addicted to Xanax when I was mostly while I was studying abroad in New Delhi, in India. Um And, like, I also had some, like, issues with cocaine. And, like, it was, like, I kept being able to, like... Li- I was, like, okay, I'm not going to take Xanax anymore. I have a problem. Like, okay, I'm not going to do cocaine anymore. I have a problem with that. Okay, like, I keep getting alcohol poisoning, but it's only when I'm drinking, like, liquor. So that's Ixnade. And then, like, I got rid of... I guess liquor was the only thing. I was gonna say got rid of beer, but I don't mm-hmm. think I did. Um or if I did it was because I stopped eating gluten. Um and um so but it was like easy to like give all these things up, but it was like I somehow there was like alcohol that's always still there. Or even like I would even I like after I graduated, I had this like really scary night with uh, when I broke up with my ex-boyfriend, where I like, just became completely blacked out in New York and freaked out at him and like tried to run into traffic in Manhattan like on a highly trafficked street and um, which would be every street yeah <laughs> that 's true <laughs> one of those streets with lots of traffic yeah. um, and then, after that, I started like seeing an alcohol therapist in New York who um, I like really didn 't like at the time because he was, like, calling me on my shit. But um, he and I would, like, make all these rules. Like, I was like, okay, like, he'd be like, okay, Friday and Saturday you can drink and you can have, like, two drinks each night. And I was like, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Like, I'm 22. Like, I need Thursdays. And, like, nobody drinks two drinks. So, like, I raised it to, like, three. And he was kind of like, okay, like, you're kind of, like, being too much already. And then, like, immediately I went out and, like, drank on, like, a Tuesday or, like, went to like away for the weekend and like blacked out both nights and like was definitely having, you know, like double digits drinks mm-hmm. and he, telling this guy I was having like three and I would see him and be like, yeah, it's fine. Like it's going well. So it's like really, I think just scary. in that sense like the cognitive dissonance and like the disconnect you yeah. can have with that. And like, yeah, going back to what you're saying, it's just like not, it becomes a point where it's not, I mean, it's always a choice in the sense that, like, I think sometimes I'm scared to say it's not a choice because, like, for people who are in that place now, it is you can get out of it. But you definitely are out of control, like, right. especially the second that you make the choice to, like, pick up alcohol at all. And I think it's, like, so hard for people who don't have that issue to understand. Yeah. But that you literally from the second you put alcohol, like, in your mouth, are just, like, out of control. Yeah. Or any drug or anything you're addicted mm-hmm. to. Uh, let's
0: talk about your sexuality. Uh. When was the first time uh, you
1: realized that you had uh, feelings for uh, boys? I think like sixth grade Um, from like, you know, like watching TV or something. I feel Mm -hmm. like I was kind of kept being like, why am I like paying attention to like this character and not this character? Like, Mm -hmm. and I don't even remember like the exact moment, but I just remember like through those types of experiences that kind of like leading into that. Mm -hmm. And then I became like sexually active when I was 15. What
0: do you remember thinking or feeling when it dawned on you that you were attracted?
1: I remember being distressed. Like, and, um, like, I don't think I was like totally surprised just because of what I was talking about earlier with like always having a feeling of like being kind of different from whatever, like Mm -hmm. mainstream young men or whatever. But like, um, I definitely think I was like hoping it was a phase, or like, yeah. I just think I was like confused and like overwhelmed and stressed. And did uh, self hatred ever present itself? Yeah, I mean, b- definitely th-
0: because of that definitely. issue. Because you were, you grew up in an era when it was starting to become. Public opinion was starting the majority of public opinion seems like it was starting to be more tolerant
1: right, and I think it 's so weird now because I like live in New York and I went to Brown, which is like very gay and very mm-hmm. liberal and I think i 've like built this very gay lgbtq friendly mm-hmm. um, life for myself, and also like so much stuff is self selecting like the news I read or like the TV personalities I watch or whatever are all of that um, point of view. But yeah, so I think sometimes it's even hard to remember that like when I was growing up, I like didn't know if I'd ever be able to be like legally married or what's that like? I mean, I think it's like obviously like um, dehumanizing because it's like marriage. I feel like for so many people is such a like focal Mm -hmm. point of life. Like I think from the time you're little, you think about like you play house and you like, I mean, all that shit was, like, so mm-hmm. heteronormative. Like, it's, like, you play house, and there's the mom and the dad and, like, the kids. And, like, mm-hmm. you buy toys, and it's that. You watch, like, t- the TV shows of the 90s were that. There wasn't Modern Family. Mm-hmm. I think, like, Will and Grace probably actually did kind of start later on. But even, like, uh, or not, like, when I was, like, 10 or something. But then also even, like, I remember watching Sex and the City recently and being, like, wow, they're like, portrayals of LGBTQ people were so fucked up and like the people who were making these shows were like giving themselves a pat on the back because they were doing it and like having gay characters or like trans characters or lesbian characters but they were like really like stereotypical mm-hmm. portrayals and I also think a lot of times they did this thing of like presenting especially like gay men as accessories to women that were not like actual people with like complex feelings or like their own wants and needs but like comic relief mm-hmm. who was there to yes. tell you which pair of shoes was ugly yeah, the,
0: the finger-wagging uh, right. guy who
1: boils it
0: down with sass.
1: Right, yeah. And, mm-hmm. like, I was watching, one of my friends texted me the other day and was, like, watching a Sex in the City episode, and she was, like, they literally just referred to, like, trans women as half-man, half-woman. Like, and I think at the time, like, I'm sh- like, I feel like if a show did that now, there'd be, like, a flood of... Mm-hmm think pieces and like media being like you can't say that and like this is why where at the time I feel like so many people like probably didn't even think twice or just laughed
0: yeah Uh, talk to the listener who's listening right now who doesn't believe in same sex marriage hmm
1: Well, yeah, I think that, um, I mean, obviously, my, like, I think this is too such a product of what we're just talking about. Like, my inclination is to immediately get very, like, aggressive and rude. But, I mean, I think that the thing to me is, like, I just really don't, it's hard for me to understand how you could be so passionate about something that doesn't impact you negatively, but impacts so many other people positively. And I think that, um like the right to love people whoever you want to or how, whoever and I don't even I don't even like saying want because it's not a choice. Like people who are gay or bi or trans or whatever. Um that's how they're born and that's who they are and it's having laws that are selectively applied to punish them for being how they are, there's just it's unacceptable and it's cruel and i think that like if those people have the opposition for religious reasons i think they need to read their religious texts a little bit closer and like instead of focusing on you know loosely worded old testament paragraphs where there's one to argue a point i think they should instead look at the sentiment of all religious texts which is usually to treat other people how you'd want to be treated and to love everyone and like so basically stop cherry-picking right. agreed agreed
0: yeah the old testament has got some super fucked up shit in it, it you yeah. know the old testament like gives the thumbs up to slavery right uh so uh and it's literally a thumb up in the uh and in the, in the <laughs> book it's crudely sketched but it is a right it's and a it's thumbs like- up and then a hang ten on the other page <laughs> Uh, well,
1: yeah, it's like, and there's like infanticide, and there's like all this shit that you're yes. like, that's what you're like living your life based on. Like, yeah. okay, well, I hope the plagues happen to you then if you're going to like pick all these things. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think the teachings of
0: uh, Jesus are beautiful. You mm-hmm. know, they're, they're um, and I guess I, I have trouble understanding how somebody could extrapolate that love based message. Right to this other thing, but right,
1: and when you look at like it's a whatever. I mean, I don't, I'm going to make up a number. It's let's say it's a thousand pages. Like nine hundred and ninety of them are kind of like beating you over the head with this point of like love other people, like mm-hmm. help people who are less fortunate than you, um, whatever. And then people will like form this opinion literally based on like. what's it called like the fox news sodom and yeah uh, yeah and (laughs) totally fox news but yeah like i think at the core all of the world's major religions can be very positive and i think that just the problem becomes when you focus on these little things and also aren't able to like listen to what people are saying and Mm -hmm. cross compare like what you think is your value with like does it actually impact you, whatever you're saying? And, like, does it impact other people? And right. why would you ever put something that doesn't impact you, right. your opinion on that, over, like, how it would positively impact yes. other people?
0: Yeah. Uh, somebody who uh, is against gay marriage, I absolutely support their choice to not marry a gay person. Right. Yeah. Same. Uh, so give me uh, a sense of what the, the next phase is and kind of you're beginning to understand yourself and make peace with who you are, who you want to be.
1: Yeah. So I think that, so when I was after the service talking about earlier, um, with like the traffic and then, um, working with that therapist, it was really weird because like, I mean, I think of my, it's easy when you're like an alcoholic to like look at that phase of life and be like, this is my problem. um, So I stopped drinking, like, a few weeks after that. Like, so basically, like, I stopped drinking for a month after the traffic situation. Then I agreed with my therapist to do that. But I was just saying again about, like, the three nights for two drinks or whatever. And I did that for two weeks and just kept blacking out and just woke up one morning and was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I really believed I was going to die. I was like, at this point, I've, like, been hospitalized so many times and have been to rehab inpatient, outpatient, like have tried to kill myself, have, like, accidentally almost died, and I was just like, I'm really going to die, and, like, it wasn't worth it. And, um, so I think that, like, it's easy when you read a book about drinking or, like, whatever, to be like, okay, like, happy ending, like, they stopped drinking. But I think what was really, like, crazy about that period is I did stop drinking, and, like, in certain ways was, um... Did I felt much less out of control in the sense that I, you know, wasn't drunk anymore. So, and when you're drunk, it's easier to do crazier shit and, like, feel like you kind of have an excuse. Um, but I think what was really jarring at that point because I'd been drinking so heavily and just, like, abusing drugs for so many years was that I was like, wow, I kind of, like, thought that I'd stop drinking and it'd be, like, this thing where I'm like, okay, I'm happy now and I'm, like, a highly functional person, whatever, where I was like, so depressed, and, like, I kind of was, like, okay, keep pushing through this, but then I just realized that my baseline was, like, very depressive, which makes sense, because before I drank, I had issues with depression, um, so then I think that was really helpful, though, to be at that point, because, like, for the first time in so, during all those years of, like, heavy drinking and abusing drugs, I'd also been like on and off all these antidepressants and it was like, I don't like this. It's like making me tired, but I wasn't like acknowledging that I'd had like 12 drinks the night before, which is also probably contributing to feeling tired. Um, Yeah. But trying to judge antidepressants while you're abusing uh, uh, drugs
0: is, uh, or recreational uh, drugs or, or alcohol uh, is futile. Right. Until I got sober, I didn't realize, Oh, my meds work right. when I'm not uh, having twelve beers mm-hmm. uh, a night. You know, when I'm not putting gallons of depressants <laughs> into my body, mm-hmm. my antidepressants work totally. Yeah,
1: and yeah, that was like such a nice moment that yeah. I had to, um, where I started taking antidepressants and was actually like able to see the difference.
0: Um, what did you think or feel in that moment when you, you saw that truth?
1: Well, I think it was really. Refreshing in the sense that, like, I think... I feel like when you talk about, like, self-medicating, it's easy to, like, not think that you do it because you think of so many things as behaviors that are so conscious. And, like, I think that and I had, fun.
0: I'm just having fun.
1: Right. And right. I think that I'd always thought of self-medicating as somebody literally being like, I am drinking alcohol to feel better in the way that you'd be like, I am taking Benadryl because I'm having an allergic reaction. Yes. Like, that it was, like, a very, like, laser-focused... <laughs> response. And then I was like, oh, well, I have been like self-medicating for all these like underlying feelings and like, yeah, mental states of being. Um, and yeah, nobody says let's, t- let's get together to kill our personal pain. Right. Yeah. You're, <laughs> yeah. You don't call it going out group therapy, yeah. <laughs> even though that's often the aim. Yes. Um, but so I think it was really nice to like t- be medicating in a way that I had been doing, with alcohol, with, you know, a prescription drug that was also being monitored by a doctor instead of, like, lying to a doctor about it. It's amazing. When you give them all the
0: information they need to help you, it's amazing how much better they can help you.
1: Right. No, and it's very nice to be at a point in life where when you go to the doctor and they give you the survey, you're not, like, writing a fictional book on it.
0: Yeah. Um, Do you use a pen name when you... uh, Fill yep. out the fake survey <laughs> three drinks
1: <laughs>
0: um, so what's what what uh is the next kind of arc of getting you to where you are now um, any vignettes you want to share that um, you feel are um, fitting for your story or just amusing or
1: heartbreaking or baffling? Well, so I guess, like, the next arc is kind of, like, continuing on with um, what I was just talking about, with, like, kind of, like, rebuilding. Or, like, I don't even know if rebuilding is the right thing to say because I think that between, like, eating disorders and drinking problems and, like, being promiscuous or whatever, I was able to, like, kind of avoid all of these, like, scary vulnerability vulnerabilities that are part of growing up. And Mm -hmm. so like for however many years, like close to 20 years, like all of my coping mechanisms were these things. And I think that like, that's been so much of the past few years of my life has been like being like, what are my new coping mechanisms? And like, when can you just not even really use coping mechanisms? And when is a coping mechanism just dealing with the issue or like, Mm -hmm you know so I think that like being vulnerable in that sense has been like a journey that I'm still on and I think that like one of the things that I've realized sometimes like as a rebound like I feel like when I think of myself as like a drunk person I would like Say whatever I felt I would like have these Super dark thoughts that I would just say Or I would like Burst into tears Oh you're have, one like, of
0: those drunks
1: Yeah And so now this scary thing About being sober Is like Do you realize how many times You've killed the rest of our buzzes? I know <laughs> I know Yeah I had to be Yeah Brought home a lot yeah. Um I was just he- a piece of shit Yeah You don't love You really knew me You don't love me But like probably Even like crazier than that Yeah Um <laughs> And so I think that one of the things that now I've been dealing with that I think I get the impression a lot of people who have dealt with like addictions do is like not um, having it be like a pendulum that swings too far the opposite way. Where now like I find that sometimes it's like I never really felt like a very repressed person and now sometimes in sobriety I'm like more repressed just because I feel like I have less like it's harder for me to like talk about how I feel when it's not tied to a crisis because so much of my life kind of was or lubricated by right you know,
0: eight beers.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's like how figuring out like what an appropriate emotional reaction to something is because like before it was so disastrous or then now I'm like probably sometimes like I'm just not going to react to this yeah. thing. So it's like that's been an interesting part yeah. of being sober.
0: I heard somebody say in a support group meeting one time, this person said, my reaction is always immediate, uh, inappropriate, and uh, overly intense. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people can relate to that because I, I think a lot of people think that the problem is the liquor or the heroin or the shopping or the cheating when it's really the feelings underneath. That's mm-hmm. just the... That's just the – these other things are
1: just the cab
0: that, you know, get you out of town for five or six hours.
1: Right. Or that, like, you know you have these feelings and then you, like, do – especially with, like, substances rather – I mean, I guess, like, cheating and stuff applies to this too. But, like, where you do this thing and then – or, like, you express yourself and it's, as you were just saying, like, over the top and, like, Mm -hmm. so extreme. But then you can just blame it on that thing. Like, I feel like – and you're still saying things that you kind of mean, or like within your hyperbolic, you know, like verbal diarrhea, there are like truths. Mm-hmm. But then like those truths you're able to just then hide again the next day because you're like, I was just drunk and I was being crazy and people, especially if they were bothered by the truth, like want to believe that as well. Yeah. Um <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> My uh, roommate in
0: college, on his uh, 21st birthday, he got really drunk and he called me a pug-nosed fat face. (laughs) I told him the next day. uh, He was horrified. And uh, he was like, oh man, I was so drunk. And I go, yeah, and I know I have a pug nose and a fat face, so (laughs) don't sweat it. (laughs) It's nothing I haven't told myself. Uh, Share if you would, uh, if you can think of a moment where you had a sexual experience and you didn't feel shame or any negative emotion where you felt, um, this is who I am and what I'm doing is beautiful and feels good?
1: Um, yeah, I think it like really took until being, like, 21... No, I guess 22 for me to feel that way. And I became sexually active when I was 15. Like, I feel like all of my... I mean, I had issues with, um, like, delayed... I mean, not even delayed ejaculation, but I had sexual dysfunction issues in that, like, it wasn't an erectile dysfunction issue, but it was just that, like... You could Yeah, and I just kind of, like, didn't feel anything. Like, I would just totally, like, kind of shut down. So, like, I which started this pattern of, like, um, kind of, like, having sexual relationships that weren't about sex. Like, they were about, like, totally about being, like, I guess, like, you could say in a way, like, uh, kind of like a conquest. But, like, I feel like when you say conquest, it makes it sound like you're, like, I'm on a conquest, so, like... Validation? Would that be a better... Yeah, like, it it was a conquest for emotional validation. And so, like, I had all these relationships where, like, if... I would kind of just, like, have sex with somebody and, like, wouldn't really mean anything and then would be just about reinforcing, like, the belief that, like, somebody wanted me and then, like, also... but So so many of them were, like, once because I was just, like, that was, like, weird and um, they were just, like, very, like, theatrical in the sense that, like, a lot of times I'd, like, feel weird about the ejaculation thing so I'd, like, lie and pretend I did or, like, blame it on, like, a medication or whatever um, when it was really just that I was like mentally shutting down. And so it, it did you experience any kind of trauma uh, as a kid? I don't, honestly, I don't know. Um Once when I was blacked out, I told my parents I did, but like right now I don't mm-hmm. have a memory of that. But I mean, I feel like, I don't know. Like I haven't actually read all that much about like sexual dysfunction, but like I kind of, feel like it points to that because like I was, it was even beyond that. Like I remember like feeling like very like flinchy when people would touch me. So mm-hmm. I think that like that kind of, I was able to like really work through that with my ex-boyfriend who was my first boyfriend, which mm-hmm. was when I was 22 and it was like a, you know, uphill battle. Like it took months. Yeah. So uh,
0: continuing, uh, let's go back to the coping tools that you've picked up and where you are today unless I'm missing something.
1: No. Okay.
0: What's the first coping uh mechanism that you started using uh where you remember thinking wow this This makes sense. This makes life a little uh, less dramatic, and
1: yeah. So I think like the first and primary one, which is probably very similar to how you feel with like the podcast, Mm -hmm. is writing has really been the best thing because I think first of all like it's forced. Well, actually, therapy has probably been the best one because that's Mm -hmm. I think is the best thing for like having to say things out loud that you're normally thinking, Mm -hmm. and like being able to be like, oh, this is how I feel now that I've like said it out loud. Because sometimes when you're just saying it in your head, you're like cycling a thought or it's easy to like commit yourself of things and other people. So I think they especially
0: when it's not being judged by the person you're sharing it with. That's right. a really connective moment.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and then the second has been writing. And I think that like one of the coolest things about it, which is probably like, again, how you are with the podcast is like when you talk about, or like writing about something and being like, this experience is so specific to me. And like, is kind of like this thing that, you know, I've spent 20 years trying to hide and then having like, 50 people email me and be like I'm with you I like have dealt with that and people you didn't expect Mm -hmm. and then even like the coolest thing about that I think is like when you think an issue is like let's say like totally alcohol related but then somebody else is like I've never had an issue with like addiction but I've had issues with like shame in this way too or Mm -hmm. like whatever um and then my third thing is like pretty basic of me but um Yoga has become like really helpful. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, I really... Uh, talk, uh, talk about why people might
0: might be uh, laughing uh, about that because I,
1: uh, I, I think because I called it basic. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. I missed that. What I, I slipped it in. Um, well, just like kind of like the like, you know, like there's the phrase like basic bitch now, mm-hmm. which would kind of be somebody who like has like Starbucks and like Ugg boots and like whatever. So like basic would just be kind of like very stereotypical behaviors that people kind of pretend are nuanced maybe. Like, I got you. So you'd be like, I got yeah, you. I, like, I do this crazy thing like I love yoga. And then everyone's like, yeah, duh, everyone loves yoga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you're like, yeah, I just discovered iced coffee and it's like, yeah, so did everyone else. Okay. You kind of like make it your thing, and you're like you're literally like reading the popular cultural checking points. Okay. Um, Talk about what you get from from doing yoga. Um, Well, I think it's like really, I guess like interesting on a few levels. Like, I think first of all, it's like nice to do something like yoga where they're like. I mean, it's kind of like when you're playing Twister and you're younger and they're like, move your right foot to the red dot and you have to, like, focus on doing that so you can't really, like, focus on something else, but even, you know, more complicated. Um, So you really kind of just are forced to, like, disengage from life. Like, I feel like... So it's
0: like Twister if you occasionally farted. Yeah. (laughs) Okay.
1: Very much so for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, I think that even when you're, like, running or something, it's still easy to, like, think about things. Where I feel like when you're doing yoga, like, you kind of can't. Yeah. especially if you're, like, being actively engaged. Like, if you're going to, like, child's fuzz, I'm sure you can still, like, cycle obsessive thoughts and yeah. stuff. But, like, if you're, like, actually doing the things they're telling you, you would fall on your face. Yeah. And then I think beyond that, like, I feel like I never, as somebody who did have, like, body issues, and, like, I didn't really talk about this, but, like, uh, kept, you know, hinting at it, but, like, had a lot of, like, issues with, like, bulimia in high school and college. And I think that, like, it's been really nice to, like, have an experience And even, like, going back to, like, the sex issues and, like, kind of, like, that emotional detachment from your body. Like, I think it's nice to do yoga and, like, feel connected to it and, like, feel in control of it. And And see how beautiful it is. The things that it can do. Right. And I think that, like, that's the other thing that I'm trying to work on is, like, and I feel like we were talking about this a little bit before, but, like, how sometimes it's hard... Like I feel like sometimes I'm so it's hard for me to like talk about things like being like yeah it's like cool to see how beautiful your body is because you feel like corny or whatever or mm-hmm. like disingenuous and but that is how I feel from it and I think that it's also like a community that really embraces people like looking at themselves in that way and like loving themselves which I think is we all need activities that Wait. push us to do that
0: absolutely absolutely um, talk briefly about the um, eating disorder. Is that something that's under c- control today? Um, what did it look like at its worst?
1: Yeah. So I think that like, I mean, it's interesting talking about this cause I feel like it all kind of hit at once. And like, I feel like that really started around the same time that I started drinking and it was like very um, intertwined and like for all of high school, like I was a runner and would like exercise a ton, but would also like just binge and then would throw up and like would, you know like after school like I remember like leaving school and getting these like giant cookies we sold and just like going home and it, that just being like kind of like my thing and like the thing that I did by myself that felt like it was like relieving stress and it just went on for like a long time and would, um, you,
0: would you when you would buy the cookie and you were on your way to eat it would you feel already high a little bit like your adrenaline starts yeah. going yeah
1: And I think that, like, one of the things that's really weird, and I guess all of this is related, like, binge drinking and binge eating, and, like, even now when I'm drinking, like, water or something, I, like, realize that I drink so much faster than other people, or, like, when food comes, I eat so much faster than other people, and, like, I still have that, like, anxious inclination to just, like, gorge on things. So I think that, like, it's definitely better, but I think that, like, most issues, like, it's something that I have to think about every day, and I also... Like I work from home, and if i so if like if I don't pay attention, sometimes I find that I like avoid eating or whatever, and mm-hmm. like so it's something that I have to be like you have to eat right now, or like this is what's healthy and normal to do um, but yeah, and I found that one thing that was kind of always happened with like the combination of like drinking and eating things is I always felt like I needed like a problem to have that was kind of like. Like when I I remember in college I stopped drinking my junior year for like two months and like immediately went to the gym and like ran nine miles and then was like kind of just like became focused on like not eating and exercising and it was just like I needed some place to like put that energy mm-hmm. and like in a weird way probably even convinced myself that it was like healthy mm-hmm. and it's that's been bizarre but I think that like one of the um, parts that's good scary about growing up but also good is that like you kind of realize when you're in the adult world, like your friends aren't living on top of you. You're not living with your parents. And you're like, if I, like, if I wanted to sit at my house all day and drink wine and throw up and whatever, I could and there's nobody who could really stop me. So I think that, like, the best thing about being a quote-unquote adult um, is that you kind of have to take the responsibility for that and like that desire to want to be okay Mm -hmm. has to come from you where like growing up, I think it was like so easy to like feel out of control and then like have these like really crazy issues and have people like Mm -hmm. intervening and like the interventions begin to like feel like the people who intervene are the people who care about you or whatever. And it's like this cycle of like really acting out and like, having people intervene, and that proves that you're, like, loved. And so I think it's nice to, like,
0: not... To be given the freedom to have your shitty idea played out completely. Right, yeah. To to see, hey, how'd that go? Yeah, not so good.
1: Yeah, totally. And to, like, have to deal with those repercussions yourself, but also just to, like, have the interventions come from yourself. Because I think that when you have, like, mental health issues and, like, have for Mm -hmm. so long, you, like, kind of have to be constantly, like... Mm -hmm your own parent a little bit or something and like have interventions with yourself where you're literally like what the fuck are you doing and like kind of rein it in and like just take care of yourself
0: Uh, to wrap it up if you if if you would share a moment if you can think of one where you're learning to be vulnerable um helped you or felt like a breakthrough And you connecting to a person in a way that you'd never done it before.
1: Yeah, I think, like, the way that I've always struggled the most with being vulnerable is, like, romantically. And so I feel like when I was, I don't know, like, I think that, like, the fear of, like, rejection or whatever, that, like, inadequacy kind of, like, fueled that. And, like, with my first relationship, like, I really did kind of, for part of it, um, become... More vulnerable, And, like, I feel like that allowed me to, like, have a relationship where, like, that's an area of my life that, like, then once that ended, I think that, like, as I was saying earlier, sometimes the pendulum swings too far and I kind of just, like, shut down that area of my life. So that's something that I'm, again, working on and, like, realizing why it's, I don't know, sometimes I'm, like, I'm focusing on my career, like, blah, 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 but that's, like, deflection. And so that's an area of my life that I'm, again, working on and having to remind myself about the rewards of being vulnerable in that area. And it's, like, interesting that, like, this right now is easier for me than, like, being vulnerable on a date. You know what I mean? Like, for a lot of people, this would be, like, their biggest fear. But for me, I'm like, I don't – this is fun. Um, And where I'm, like, you know, dating somebody and being honest sounds like, you know, to some people, like, getting a cage of rats put on their head. Um, (laughs) So I'm working on it. Uh, Anything else you'd like to share? Um – not that i can think of thank you all sorry that i wasn't looking at you Seamus, yeah. curse everybody and thank you guys
0: so much for coming out thank you for continuing to support the podcast it means it means so so much to me thank you really really enjoyed talking to uh Seamus, such a bright guy and uh yeah check his book out it's called shit faced we'll put a link to that on the uh, on the website uh let me tell you about Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. I think those of us that listen to this podcast and uh, or participate in it, uh, it's probably closer to half half our life. Or one one hundredth of our life for those of us that have insomnia. Uh, they sent me a Casper mattress, and uh, I love it. I slept on it last night. I slept. Uh, I am tempted to say slept like a baby, but sometimes babies uh, don't sleep too well. So I slept on it like a a uh, like a very satisfied adult male. How does that, how's that sound? Uh, yeah, it was uh, super comfortable, and I didn't even eat ice cream before I went to uh, went to bed. And uh, yeah, what what they say is true. It was easy to unbox, and if you think that I'm just saying this because they're an advertiser, go look at the uh, the reviews on Amazon. It's gets amazing reviews. Anyway, start start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get fifty bucks towards any mattress purchase by visiting Casper.com slash mental and using mental at checkout. That's Casper.com slash mental. And then the offer code mental for 50 bucks off your mattress purchase terms and conditions apply let's uh let's also give uh give some love to quip electric toothbrush i've been using one now for about a month and a half and uh, it's awesome and you know the holidays around the season here's here's some thoughts uh why it'd be a good gift uh, number one uh it'd be Gift that people would actually use every day, not something that'll just get thrown in a drawer. Uh, number two, you don't have to go to a store to get it. Quip uh, can ship directly to your door or theirs. And number three, it's that perfect $25 price point for those secret Santa you struggle with every year. I always, I, I never know. I always hate when I get paired with somebody and I know nothing about them and I'm not interested. <laughs> <laughs> knowing anything about them, uh, but listen, with Quip, you don't have to worry about getting new brush heads or toothpaste. They're delivered right to your door on schedule, so you replace your brush on time and have better oral hygiene at an affordable price with the sleekest design you've ever seen for an electric toothbrush. And that that ain't no lie, man. It looks like it looks like Steve. Jobs designed it, minus, minus the bullying and the and the being pushy. Uh, their toothpaste, uh, I like the taste of it. It's clean. It's mini. Uh, I think you dig it. You know, there's no charger. There's no wires. It's compact. It's light. It's sweet. Anyway, Quip starts at just 25 bucks, And right now, when you go to getquip.com slash mental, you can get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash mental. That's g-e-t-q-u-i-p dot slash mental. Let's get to some base. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Dave and about his depression. He writes, it's off and on. When it." F- when it's on, it feels like there's never been another feeling in my life. Oh my God, yes. You can't even imagine what it was like to have been happy. It's just kind of a vague memory of like, you know, like a great-grandfather whose face you remember vaguely from a picnic when you were three. About his anxiety, waiting to die badly and unexpectedly. I had a panic attack one time. It was after... uh I had just moved here in 1994, moved to LA, and uh, my w- uh, wife at the time, ex-wife now, um, we'd been there a week, and this massive fucking earthquake hits, and it after the after the, the the quake settled down, the first time I got high, I had a panic attack, and I was convinced that another quake was gonna hit the next second. And I just laid on the bed with my heart racing. And uh she was on the road doing stand up and I just remember I was I, I couldn't even pick up the phone and and talk to anybody. I, I was just I truly felt I was in fear for my life. I've never had one since then. Um but whew, I I really have a lot of uh, empathy for those of you that experience them uh, on a regular basis Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself quit giving Sedona a hard time I've never even been to Sedona so uh, I really should uh, quit making fun of them uh, because I don't want me them coming after me in their guru robes you know you probably hear their sandals a mile away Uh, I felt compelled to fill this out after hearing surveys and letters here by listeners who have cut themselves and who are afraid that the scars will keep them from making meaningful social connections or getting a job. I cut myself between the ages of 14 and 20 in very visible areas on my arms and even once on my face. At the time, I was incapable of imagining a future for myself and I was desperate to discharge my emotional pain somehow." I stumbled upon cutting myself as a temporary relief and gave no thought to the long-term consequences of doing so. I stopped when I was 20, probably because I realized that I was going to have to live a whole life past my teenage years, and it dawned on me that I would have to take my body with me, scars and all. I had a lot of deep shame about cutting, and I still hadn't healed the underlying emotional trauma that caused me to cut myself. I was scared about what people would think of me, if I'd ever find anyone who could love me, if I'd get through a job interview without being dismissed. There have been a few painful interactions, a manicurist who noticed my scars, made a face, and refused to look me in the eye. But I've had plenty more interactions with people who either didn't notice, or it was a non-issue for them. I've had positive interactions, too, like the nurse at my doctor's office who very gently mentioned the scars, noticing that they were not fresh, and asked how everything was now. I told her that things were better. I was so touched by her compassion and kindness, and it still brings tears to my eyes to think of it now, ten years later. I finally found a great therapist, and then in parentheses, fifth times the charm, who helped me understand and heal the emotional pain that caused the cutting in the first place. I met a wonderful woman who knows everything about me and still loves me as I am, and we are married now. I have a great church community, and some of them know the story behind the scars. And beyond caring about me and wanting me to be okay, it's a total non-issue. I have a job where I sometimes sit at the reception desk, so I am the first person the clients see when they walk in. I've worn sleeveless shirts and let the scars on my arms be visible, and more often than not, I'll skip the makeup in the morning so the scar on my face is visible. The scars have never been mentioned by anyone in a professional capacity. I've become friends with a colleague of mine who is very talented and I admire her very much. We went out for drinks one night and got into some deep talking about our pasts. I mentioned that I used to cut myself to cope with pain, the uh, pain that I didn't understand. She nodded and said that she used to cut as well and that she had seen my scars and felt safe talking to me because she thought we might be the same. I know this isn't a moment per se, but maybe the happy moment for me is that I made it through the cutting years, and I'm still here to fill this out. I also want anyone who has cut themselves and has scar shame to know that even though the scars are a part of the story, they are not the whole story, and people see so much more than the marks we leave on ourselves. That is some profound... Beautiful survey taken right there. Thank you so much for that. This is uh, filled out by Supernova Consciousness and about being a sex crime victim. She writes, Why am I the only one who believes I have more to offer than just my body? About experiencing racial or cultural bias, she writes, Not minority enough to not be a race traitor, not stereotypical enough to be the token. Thank you for sharing that. I see that so often under the uh, racial and cultural bias uh, on this on this survey. And a lot of uh, the the thing about not being enough of one or enough of the other and just feeling like you're between two worlds. This is a shame and secret survey. Uh, also, I should mention, um, I got an email from somebody. And it wasn't the first time I've gotten this email where... People want uh, a trigger warning before I read stuff that is um, kind of violent or sexual or involves, you know, a combination of the two. And I kind of feel like this that there's so much heavy shit discussed in this podcast that would be I'd be giving a trigger warning all the time. But what I, maybe I should say is. Whenever you guys hear me read from this uh, survey, the Shame and Secrets survey, um, that's the one that usually has. If somebody's triggering in it, that's usually the thing that that does it for somebody. Um, so if you're worried about being triggered uh, and you hear me start to read one of those surveys, maybe um, fast forward um, through it. This just filled out by a woman who calls herself Love's Moon Shadows. She is uh, bisexual. Uh, she's in her 40s and was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. Uh, when I was ages 8 to 11, my older brother would visit my bedroom at night and molest me. I feel oddly disconnected from it and am definitely not close with my brother now. I've taken something bad and turned it into good by taking significant measures to ensure my own young daughters have the language needed to report. They are aware of good touch, bad touch, good secrets, and bad secrets. They are not allowed to go on sleepovers and we talk openly about our bodies being private and that they say what is acceptable for them. Uh, She's been emotionally abused, but never been physically abused. My mother was and continues to be emotionally abusive to me ever since I was 19. I am 45 now. Um, That's interesting that she started when you were 19. Unfortunately, I'm now seeing this directed towards my daughters, and I've put in place significant boundaries to ensure they feel safe and loved, and this does not happen to them. I've made boundaries with my mother, and she is currently not in my life. I feel deeply liberated by not having a relationship with her. I'd be lying if I said it didn't still hurt. I'm processing through the fact that I didn't have the mother I deserve to have and that I never will. I'm using the energy to ensure I am the kind of mama my daughters deserve and take my role and responsibility seriously any positive experiences with your abusers. When I was going through my divorce a couple of years ago, my mother was very supportive during this time and helped get my new life situated and was emotionally and financially very supportive. Of course, when all was said and done, this was held over my head and I was made to feel ridiculed for this help and told that she wished she had never helped me. And this happened in front of my daughters darkest thoughts. There are times when I long for the day that my mother will no longer walk this earth so that I don't have conflicted feelings of hating her and then wanting to attempt to win her approval that I know I will never have. I long for the day when that internal struggle finally ends and I am free of that turmoil. I fantasize about walking away from my life to go live on a beach somewhere and have no connection or responsibilities to anyone or anything. Freedom Waves and the sun and bugs. <laughs> Darkest Secrets. I was convicted of embezzlement when I was 21 years old. I tried to buy my way out of emotional, emotional turmoil and instead bought my way into a prison cell. I have since turned my life around but still have emotional struggles. I've made open adoption plans for two children and have very strong, positive, ongoing relationships with both of my birth children. I've had three abortions. Uh, I am a single mom to two amazing daughters. All in all, I have been pregnant seven times that I am aware of. While I love all of my children, I feel like a baby-making machine and have shame about my abortions. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I want to be the female with two males pleasuring me at once. I want to be desired and wanted and pleased in all ways that would encompass Um, in all ways that would encompass. Uh, I feel empowered by sharing this. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd love to tell my mother to fuck off for being so hurtful and so destructive to me emotionally. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for someone to actually fight for me, fight to keep me. I wish for someone to think I was worthy enough to stand up for me. i do this for myself but wonder what it would feel like for someone else to deem me worthy. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I've shared my sexual fantasy with my partner and he loves the idea and loves to talk about it with me during sex. It's very powerful. How do you feel after writing these things down? A bit lighter. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Hang in there and be the best you can be for yourself. If someone did something to you you didn't deserve, don't repeat it. Be the change. I wanted to read your survey because I think it is such a great example of somebody overcoming some really hard stuff and getting to a place where you're setting boundaries, you're protecting your kids, um, you're you know you had committed a crime, but now you've turned your life around um, and and you are your your sex positive, you're in touch with your feelings. Um, yeah, it, it's just like a, um to me, this is like a realistic, this is what, like a realistic version of what recovery looks like. You know, it's, it's never going to be, uh you know, some Disney version where there's no insecurity and no struggle. And, you know, we don't long for anything. Um, well, there are there are some people like that, and they all live in Sedona. Oh, see now, she, somebody sent me an email saying, um, you know, Sedona is not all that you think you think it is. And actually, I'm 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 trying to be open minded about it. A, a, a listener said that crystals really helped them, and would uh, I like to try some? They'd be happy to send me some. So I said, sure, sure. So um, you know, maybe I'll be eating my words. This is a happy moment filled out by Oh, one other thing that I wanted to mention. I got a really beautiful email from um a listener and he uh we had had a sponsor on um a little while back and it was for um meat products and and he he wasn't shaming me. He was just saying that he was disappointed that I was contributing to the um industrialized slaughter of, of animals and um, and while it didn't while this was not news to me um, I when I had accepted that ad I didn't leave enough time to reject it through um, the agency that books them and so I felt obligated to keep that ad, but I said that please tell them that I don't want to do any more ads for them because I feel like it's bad enough that I still eat meat. I I don't want to be promoting it. Um, and the way that he said it was so gentle and not shaming. It just, it really, uh, it really touched me. But I wanted to also mention that for anybody else that was... Um, Kind of disturbed by uh, me promoting that. Um, and honestly, if, if I were really more confident in myself and probably in, in less uh, fear of making somebody in the business world upset, I would have canceled it regardless of how, how much notice. Um, so anyway, this is a happy moment filled out by a piano trapped in my soul. And they write, uh, the first one was, well, actually, there's just one that I'm going to read. Uh, I was nine years old when my grandfather died. After the funeral, we went outside to spread his ashes, but it wasn't as ceremonious as I anticipated. Our parents filled red party cups with dry gray ash. I realized this was all that was left of my grandfather. My aunt yelled, uh, out to us realizing her mistake. Don't drink it, kids. It made us all laugh hysterically for the first time since his death and it felt so good and made it easier to let go of someone we love. Thank you for that. Um I really loved my uh my uh mother-in-law. Um and she died in 96 and I was so so upset. She was just just the sweetest woman, and um had many of the qualities I think i had craved as a as a child and um in a in a mother and that's not to say my mom didn't do some stuff that was right um uh, but when she my mother in law died um i <laughs> there was nobody. There was nobody crying harder uh, at at the uh, ceremony, and I think it was because it was the first time I felt a kind of safe, older maternal presence in my life, and now she was she was gone. And uh, one of the th- my, the point of all of this is, I thought we need to celebrate her, and she was she was really funny, not like in an intentional way, just kind of, she was goofy. And, and uh my ex-wife and her sisters, you know, they'd always, you know, uh, they'd make fun of her, but in a loving way. And there was all kinds of footage uh of her. And uh I said, let's go home and just play movies of her and remember what we loved about her because she died a really, really slow, painful death from, uh, from cancer and, and it really helped. So anybody out there that, that is, um, grieving or you're about to lose somebody, um, it, there, there can be ways to, um, deal with it that while certainly don't take the pain away can, um, um, bring some meaning to it, soften it a little bit even if it's just temporary. listen to the episode too with uh caitlin um doty and uh it's a it's a good it's a good one. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself my vibrator is named the master sob five thousand uh master sob is a reference to a a name that we came up for the act of uh masturbating, and crying at the same time. I think we also have a word for um, crying and uh, standing at the sink eating junk food as well. Uh, What is Sob gobbling. That's what we call it, sob gobbling. And I think there's even one for eating cake, masturbating, and crying at the same time. I don't know what that's called. A hat trick? I forget what we called it. Anyway, uh, her struggle is uh, about having a partner that cheated Uh, and in a sentence she writes the one person who has the power to comfort you when you need it most is also the one person who broke you Uh, having OCD and then finding out that your partner cheated on you means that you get to punish yourself with thoughts and images over and over and over and over over in an infinite loop That that must be really really fucking brutal thanks for sharing that uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Al, and he writes, uh, Walking a best friend's dog for him while he and his partner gave birth to their first child and their home. It was pouring rain, and I was so drenched, but I needed to tire the dog out so he wouldn't get in the way of the birth. I felt so, so lucky to be a part of their lives, to have them trust me and need me on one of the biggest days of their lives. I dropped the dog off and went home. A few hours later in the morning, I walked back over and held the tiny, soft, sweet, brand-new little person who now calls me Uncle as the morning sun streamed in. Wow. That was like a poem. Thank you for that, Al. Um, This is... I'm going to actually starting to feel a little uh sleepy i'm going to cut to our last two our last two uh surveys this is an awful some moment uh you know how i talk sometimes about how there are themes that appear in the surveys that i gather together for uh for a given uh episode um friends was kind of the theme of, of this week's. And, um, I want to end with these, these two. One is an awful some moment and the other is a happy moment. Um, and even the awful moment, I think there's a, there's a, uh, happiness to it. Um, this woman calls herself mother's perfect doll. And she writes, as I was hanging out with my friends, one of them decided to use the N-word. I'm black and feel very uncomfortable with anyone using it, and my friends are Latino. They would apologize to me for using it and repeat the cycle. My social anxiety and fear of confrontation prevented me from saying anything. The next day, I was so ashamed that I was unable to tell them to stop, but rather just sat there like an idiot. Two days after the event, I remember my therapist telling me, Whatever I was feeling was valid and writing is a help tool for me. I drafted a very long text message and sent it out to them explaining how hurtful their behavior was, how it made me feel, and that they should never use the N-word. Also immediately, they replied with apologies and promises to never use the word. I don't care for their apologies for this was the first time in my life I took something from therapy, applied it, and was validated. It proved to me that year and a half of therapy is working thank you for that that is one of the greatest things when you start to recover in a support group or therapy and you got a new tool and you just feel like like for me one of the best tools was realizing i don't have to stay on the phone until the other person is done or i don't even have to return the phone call of somebody that i don't want in my life um yeah god that was so freeing and finally this is a happy moment filled out by all i want is to stop being a perfectionist and she writes it happened a few years ago but i think about it every time i'm struggling to be happy i spent all of my senior year of undergrad working on a thesis and it was a grueling process tying together what seemed like everything i had ever studied during college I was exhausted but proud of everything that I had done, and so the couple of weeks before I was slated to give a presentation on my paper, I invited every single person I knew to come see my presentation. I didn't have high hopes. Most of my friends weren't in my department, and though I was passionate about my topic, I knew it was arcane and not the kind of thing people wanted to spend time listening to. I thought maybe if I was lucky, a couple of my friends would come. But on the day of my presentation, a few minutes before my time slot, My friends started filing into the presentation room. Even some students I had TA'd for, and some of my professors arrived. The room was small, so though only a dozen or so extra people had arrived, a couple of them were sitting on the floor, just to hear me speak. As I stepped up to the podium, I could tangibly feel the support, like a blanket wrapped around me. When I looked out to the audience, my audience, I saw the excited faces of all the people who were important to me, who had helped to make my college experience truly magical, who had taught me what real good friendship and love look like. Smiling back at me, I kicked ass in the presentation. As soon as I finished speaking and stepped away from the podium, All my best friends came rushing up to me to give me a giant group hug and tell me how much they loved my project, how interesting they thought it was, and how they could tell that I had worked really hard. It wasn't a grand gesture. They just showed up. But it's a reminder to me when I'm having a rough time that no matter how bad things are, I've got people in my corner who will always, always have my back. Beautiful beautiful. That, yes, that one might not, that one might be so much more than beautiful. It is B-E-A-U. Beautiful. Alright, now I'm annoying myself. Um, You know, I think that to myself sometimes when uh, at some of my support groups, uh, we form a circle and we'll do you know, maybe some type of uh, maybe say the serenity prayer or something. And it occurred to me one day, and it was at a men's meeting, and there's like 40 of us, you know, arms interlocked, smiling at each other, some of us with our heads down. And, and it occurred to me, this is who I go through my life with. I'm not going through it alone. I can tap into the power of these people and the people in my other support groups if I choose to. And all of a sudden, I realized, wow, the world isn't as scary and lonely as I had always thought it was. And um, I think back on that when I go through stuff, that um, when you allow people that are safe and loving into your life, and you treat them the same way in return, it's... it's just a really cool feeling. It's like a good gang. <laughs> it's like it's like being in a big, lame gang. It'd be funny to see two big support group gangs rumble under the viaduct. One of them's got a broken coffee pot. The other one has the pen from the phone list. All right, that's enough that's enough out of me if you're out there and you're struggling just reach out reach out for help there's so many people no matter what it is that you're feeling there is somebody else that feels just like you that wants to know that they're not alone and um, you can find each other or even a group of you and makes life not only bearable but fun enjoyable and um yeah you're not alone and thanks for listening everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody fucked up in i know is bizarrely wit. beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way
1: bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some